Back on the big wake-up call, and so great to chat with my next guest. He is half of the best-selling duo in rock history. I'm just going to say best duo, period, in rock history. And today he is joining our Six Timers Club, and of course, it's John Oates. John, so glad to have you back. How have you been? All right, six times, huh? Okay. One of these times, we got to get you here in the studio, and then we'll go on a Chicago pizza eating tour. All right. Well, you know what? Let's see if we can we can get that happening. Um, actually, you know, it's funny. Just yesterday, we were talking about booking a show in Chicago with me and Guthrie on this acoustic tour. So we're working on that for May. So good chance we'll be in your area in May. Oh, we would love that. Plus, we just uh, redid our guest rooms. You guys are, are totally welcome. <laughs> All right. But as long as Guthrie and I don't have to share, share the same bedroom, uh, we're okay. <laughs> Now, I, last time you were here, you were talking about uh, Oats Song Fest. How did that uh, go for you? That was amazing. It was during COVID when my wife and I were at home all the time, and we just felt like we, you know, we we had we became aware of the food, uh, you know, uh, shortage and and the, the fact that American families were actually you know couldn't put food on the table. We just felt we wanted to try something. We reached out to our artist friends, and all these amazing artists responded. Uh, they were so gracious, and uh, it, they all sent music in, and we put this online uh, kind of tele- telethon, musicathon together, and we managed to raise uh, 450,000 meals for nice. Feeding America. And they're a wonderful organization. Uh, all the money goes to food, and uh, very little goes to, you know, uh, kind of wasted administrative costs. So we were very impressed with, it, with them as an organization and uh, wanted to just help as best we could. And now you're out on tour, an evening of songs and stories with John Oates featuring Guthrie Trap. Uh, so what kind of show do you have planned? Well, it's just the two of us with acoustic guitars. And we, we, uh, we had been jamming in the living room and we, it sounded so good. We just said, you know, why can't we just go out on stage just the way we're doing it right here in the living room and bring the living room to, to the stage? And that's what we did. Um, we tell stories. Uh, you know, Guthrie's got a great personality and he's an incredibly flashy and uh, amazing guitar player uh so he makes me better you know he kind of elevates my game and we go back and we we play some of the songs that were important to me that informed who i am as a musician way before i met daryl hall the music that i made you know from the earliest days of uh you know folk music and blues and roots music uh, up through the early days of rock and roll right up through my solo stuff and then we play some of course we play some hall and oats hits uh you know in a reimagined kind of way uh acoustically and uh we just we just tell stories and make it very it's a very personal show it's very um you know we take we take requests from the audience i mean i don't know how else to describe it but it's um like i said we we just try to bring the living room to the stage now you're telling stories are you talking songwriting because i'd pay to hear you talk about songwriting as long as you wanted to absolutely that's what i do we talk. I talk about how some of the collaborations came together. Um, you know, musicians and songwriters in general are very interesting people, and there's there's always a unique story behind these songs. And I think even if people aren't familiar with some of the songs, when they hear the story behind those songs, it, it really it really opens up a whole new way of hearing the song. And um, you know, I tell I tell all kinds of you know funny and interesting stories about that. And I also talk, talk about the early days of American popular music, how, um, how songs in the 1920s sold a million copies, which a lot of people might think that 
pop music started with rock and roll, but it didn't. You know, it started way back in you know in the early you know in the early 1920s at the birth of radio and, and the, the record record player, the phonograph machine. So it's it's kind of a musical journey that we we go through, and uh, hopefully it's it's you know I don't want to make it sound like a like an academic lecture because it's not. It's entertaining and um, it's uh, it's just a chance to do something different. Now, when when you write songs, typically, are you sitting down trying to write a song? Because I've done that. It never works. But usually if I walk my dog or take a shower, the song will usually come to me like unconsciously. Yes, you know, that happens to me a lot. Um, I get some great ideas when I'm hiking or riding my bike or, you know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm disengaged from the world and, uh, you know, all of a sudden ideas pop in. So, yeah, very similar to what you just described. Uh, I just wrote a song yesterday, and I hadn't written a song in months. Um, just got this crazy idea. I sat down with the guitar, and it, it came out. I wrote the whole thing in about an hour. So um, every once in a while, it's divine inspiration, and a lot of times it's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of nuts and bolts and hard work. So it depends. It can be, you know, it can be kind of anything. So you've got uh, a more intimate tour like this. Obviously, you've done stadium tours as part of a superstar duo. You kind of kind of stretch out here some other music that you know, you'd like to show stuff that really inspired you. Do you approach like a, a low-key gig like this differently than a stadium show? Um, well, yeah, because, you know, I know that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be this thing where I'm, where, where I, you know, eye to eye with the audience. Um, there's usually some interplay with the audience that you can't get when you're on a giant stage at Madison Square Garden. Um, and, you know, the thing about the, the, the venues that we've booked for this tour are all old theaters, where that were actually designed for music designed for performances and so when you get on the stage and it sounds good and the guitars sound so great in this room it's just um it's just very very it's it's really kind of playing music in the in the in the way it was meant to be heard you get to some of those smaller venues and i'm thinking places like you know the the chicago theater here this was was a, was a movie theater that was built for vaudeville but it, it's still probably right. the best acoustics in, in in the city that's just you know, it's 3,000 seats, but still sounds like such an intimate room. Exactly. We're playing old vaudeville theaters all through this tour on the Northeast. Um, so, yes. Uh, and we, we are, we're actually looking for the right venue right now in the Chicago area. So we're working on that. So hopefully in May we'll be able to get out your way. Well, absolutely. We'd love to see you here. John, where can we get uh, more information on the tour and people can get tickets if it's uh, coming near them? You can follow me on Instagram at John Oates Official, uh, my website, johnoates.com. But I'm on TikTok and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and also, you know, we're, we're streaming a show uh, that we recorded in Nashville. Oh, great. And uh, it's streaming on uh, March 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern, which would be 7 Central, uh, on March 13th on mandolin.com. Mandolin is a streaming service. So you can uh, go on mandolin.com and sign up for it. Uh, and it's a full concert uh, and very similar to what we'll be doing when we eventually get to Chicago. Well, John, yeah, I'd love to see you here in May. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, welcome to the Six Timers Club. Hey, appreciate it, man. Thank you. We 
are back on the big wake-up call and so excited to talk to my next guest is a Grammy-winning artist, a music legend, and now a host of a brand new podcast called Bel Air, the official podcast. And I get to say hello to a DJ Jazzy Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. It's so great to have you here. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm beautiful. I am beautiful. I cannot complain. When you started off being a DJ with, with the technology then, was it literally, was it just two table, uh, two turntables and a microphone? Was that it back then? Two turntables, a mixer, microphone, and record yeah. that you had to carry. And boy, that's fun. You know what? I just moved to a new house. So yeah, it was fun packing up about uh, 600 LPs. I can't imagine how much fun that was carrying probably on the train or whatever you had to take. Oh, my goodness. Carrying all of those records, that is one thing that I do not miss. Do you remember the first record that excited you, that made you heard it and said, you know what, I think I can do this. I think I can DJ. Um, you know what? So much of my music taste came from my older brothers and sisters. Yeah. So that was the, that was the beauty of it. It was, it was kind of like... Um, you know, being a sponge on the wall and, and receiving music from them is what gave me an overall love of music because it was them sharing their taste in music. And when I got old enough to have my own taste, I just combined them all together and said, you know what? I want to take this and play this for other people. Did you have a go-to record or a couple go-to records when you were DJing that you knew would, would get people going? Now, you know what, I think those kind of things are subject to change depending on where you are and who's in front of you. Sure. Um, there's never one record that's going to change the night. That record can change depending on whatever situation you're in. So you've got uh, a podcast, Bel Air, the official podcast, and of course this is uh, the brand new series. What's going on with the, uh, with the official podcast? Um, we wanted to take a different spin um, and addressing the uh, Bel Air. This is, it's not a recap, so we're not going to rehash the things that you've seen in the previous episodes. It's more of a culture podcast. We want to have conversations, you know, about the, the people behind the scenes and in front of the camera who basically brought you a reimagining of the Fresh Prince. This is not like the old series. This is someone basically taking the series in the 90s bringing it to 2022 and saying, what if this was real life? What would it be like? And I think they did a masterful job of that. You know, and I didn't really think about it as much as I love the show, but yeah, you had, uh, you, you found out how Will got to Bel Air and then, you know, he had his struggles in dealing with that, but we didn't really know much about his, his background or what was going on with him, you know, maybe in his head or psychologically. I think it's, it's such a fun idea to kind of explore the elements in this show that uh, you, you really couldn't do in a, in a family sitcom. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people realize that the very first episode of Bel Air was the theme song of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. The theme song was never uh, visually portrayed. Yeah. So this is the first time you got a chance to listen to the lyrics of the, 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 the original theme song, and it plays out how Will got to L.A. So on the show, I understand you have you're you're represented on the show. You have an actor playing you. Did they strive for authenticity? Did someone study you and, and, and pick up on your mannerisms? Um, 
No, because I think the the reimagining of the show yeah. was not intended to, to to be, you know, comedic or anything like that. I think they did a great job, you know, with Jordan and 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 his character in playing jazz. What would jazz be like in 2022? What 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 would his job be? What would his life be? How would he act? I think they did an incredible job with it. So how is it to see it converted not just from yeah from a comedy to drama but that's interesting taking it from the 90s to modern day there's so many different ways you could have gone with that it seems like they they were really very very smart about it Yeah you know it, it's like I said we didn't have social media back then Yeah we didn't have podcasts back then so there are so many nuances about you know uh uh today that they 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 sprinkled in when it comes to you know Bel Air, it, it's 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 a reimagining of what it would be like if you know the old show came today. So this is exciting. Are you doing any music? Are there any original tunes for this? Um, I haven't done any music for the show. Um, two very good friends, Robert Glasper and Terrace Martin, are the music guys for the show, which I don't think they can pick anybody better. Um, but it it it. It's definitely um, a, a a point in a different direction when it comes musically with this show. The, the the music on the show definitely pulls at your heartstrings. And how often does your character get thrown out of the house on this version? <laughs> well, I haven't seen him get thrown out yet, so I'm not sure if that's coming. Hopefully, in today's age, um, he would probably know what to do not to get thrown out yeah. of the house. Oh, I've got to see it at least once. They have to throw a bone to the fans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Bel Air, the official podcast, it is available wherever you get your podcast. Of course, hosted by my guest, DJ Jazzy Jeff. And so great to have you here today. I always wanted to talk to you and uh, appreciate you calling in. Ah, thank you very much. And we are back on the big wake-up call and time for my next guest. He's a designer, photographer, filmmaker, and founder of the iconic design company Hypnosis. He is the author of a new book, Through the Prism, Untold Stories from the Hypnosis Archive. It is available now where books are sold, and we're going to visit with Aubrey Powell. And uh, good morning, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. That's great. Glad to have you here. I read every book on, on rock I can because, according to my wife, that's all I seem to care about. Absolutely loved this one. Can you briefly share with our listeners what you have here in Through the Prism? In Through the Prism is a memoir of, uh, of my recall of working through the 1970s uh, for some of the biggest rock bands in history. Uh, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Bad Company, Paul McCartney, Genesis, uh, The Who, the list goes on and on, the Rolling Stones. And it, it's my account of what I remember working with these artists and the work that we did for them. And I think one of the interesting things is that in those days, the album cover was supremely important to the band or any band. And um, the, what happened was that hypnosis sort of became like the fifth wheel on the car. We became part of the band, part of the entourage, part of the 
the ethos of the band in terms of designing in images which represented the band. And you have to remember, in those days, there was not Spotify, YouTube, uh, any, any kind of social media, uh, or MTV or VH1, anything like that. And there was just a few magazines and newspapers that signposted what the band were about. But the album cover became supreme in that. And we tried to convey a message with surreal ideas as to what the band's uh, wanted the fans to feel and see about themselves. Now, when you're designing a cover, as you mentioned, are you trying to capture the essence as a band? Are you going for the theme of the record? Like, as a designer, what story are you trying to tell through the, for the cover of an LP? Well, interestingly enough, we rarely designed uh, things to the music or the name of the band or the name of the album or the lyrics or, or anything like that. We more thought of interesting ideas that we thought might be appropriate to the band. Uh, and, and sometimes, I mean, let's say uh, Presence for Led Zeppelin, which is the black object, mm -hmm. uh, it has no relevance at all, really, to the music. Uh, or, or, or to Led Zeppelin, but it's very appropriate, uh, everybody needing this black object in order to live and survive. And I think probably it was very much uh, appropriate for the time and very much appropriate for them. Uh, uh, and many people say, well, what's that got to do with heavy rock? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with heavy rock, but it's really a stimulating, interesting picture. And that's all I can say about it, really. And that's how hypnosis works. We work very selfishly. Uh, to do pictures that we liked, and it wasn't so much about what the band liked, you know, and that's the reality of it. Well, hugely important um, when when you're thinking of a band. Like, you mention a Led Zeppelin album, and I'm immediately picturing the cover, especially Houses of the Holy, and if it's not necessarily the imaging of the band, it certainly sets a mood, and if I love the band, I'm like, I really want to find out what's in there. Yes, but I think that what we're looking at here is probably um, a period of time, as I say, where you know the, the album covers very much a signpost to what the band was thinking and right. what they were about. And if you recall, getting an album cover in those days... Sorry, I just have to excuse me one second. If you recall, getting an album cover, uh, when you bought it from the store, it was shrink-wrapped for a start, so you had the sort of ceremony of taking it out of the shrink-wrapping, then looking at the inside... Uh, removing the album, uh, the vinyl, putting the vinyl onto the onto the table, and 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 putting the stylus onto the vinyl, and then playing the album. And the next thing you did was study the album cover. You read the lyrics, you you, you looked at all the pictures, and you tried to get a, a feeling as to what the band was all about that matched with the music. And this is where hypnosis somehow managed to to convey that. And I think that was important, you know. Like, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so I was buying albums, and I know you worked with, uh, with, with Paul McCartney, did the Tug of War cover. I remember studying that and, and looking at the lyrics on the back, and you look at it now, you really captured the feel of, like, uh, Paul McCartney as he's moving into the 80s. Yes, I, I think that uh, working with Paul was a lot of fun because uh, we always had this, this thing with him, which was a bit of a laugh, because we'd come and present a bunch of ideas, and he always pulled one out of his pocket and said, oh, but I have another idea. And uh, we'd say, okay, what's that? And Venus and Mars was a perfect example. Two balls on a, on a piece of baize uh, of, of, of a, a pool table. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that for you, and we'll have a look. And he'd say, no, you do your idea, and I'll do my idea, and then we'll see which one is best. 
and always at the end of the day, they'd say, oh, "See, my one, my idea is best, so we'll use that." <laughs> it was, it was funny, and that went on for years like that. And it was part of the sort of, um, you know, the sort of, I don't, I don't know, repartee with Paul McCartney that made it good. You know, made it made it worthwhile. But I liked working with him because he was always keen to to show off ideas. Uh, that he felt were important, were important, and and, and 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 you know that was great. He took it very seriously, and uh, you know what I also liked was the fact that when you had an idea, which I did about um, shooting a, a statue for William's Greatest Hits on a mountain, uh, he said, oh, go to Everest. And I said, well, no, that's slightly impossible. He said, well, go to the Matterhorn. I said, well, even that's a bit difficult. So I found the, ma- the next mountain down from the Matterhorn, and he said, yeah, okay, go there. And uh, when I'd finished it, um, you know, there was a snowy background with a statue in the foreground, and it, it looked amazing. And I took it to him, and I showed it to him. He said, that's great. I love it. He said, but we could have done it in the studio, <laughs> you know. But we didn't. We did it for real, and that was part of the the, the whole thrill of it, you know. And uh, although I have to say I was scared to death standing on top of a mountain shooting a, a statue, but nevertheless, what I appreciated about him was he was prepared to give everything a go, you know, get, just have a go at it, and I, and I like that. I have that Wings album. I had no idea the the length that went through to to get that shot. Did he feel like the the listener would absorb that? Because you're right. Couldn't you have have plopped it in the snow in England somewhere? Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But I, I think you know. In, again, you have to cast your mind back to those days. The business was awash with money. Uh, albums sold in tens of millions. So for uh, a band to spend huge amounts of money in the album cover was not unusual. I mean, I remember when I went to 10CC and I said to them, um, you know, is this an idea of a sheep on a, on a, on a psychiatrist's couch uh, and I want to shoot it in, in front of rolling waves? And they said to me, well, uh, what about in the south coast of England? I said, no, Hawaii, because there you get big, blue, beautiful uh, white rollers there. They said, okay, we'll go to Hawaii. Bands with, with hypnosis just said yes to whatever we wanted to do because money was no object. It was not like today where people, you know, business is very tight. Whereas in those days, it, it was washed with money and people wanted to spend the right kind of money on the right kind of album cover, you know, and that was, that was it. We were fortunate, you know. Well, then, and finally, my band, uh, The Unswept, we have a new album coming out later this year. We have an art budget of uh, $100 and Starbucks gift cards. Would that get it done for you? I'd do that for you. I promise you. Uh, the thing is, it's not about the money for me anymore. It's much more about getting an idea out there. And I've got a sort of, I've got a plan chest full of ideas that I've often photographed. A perfect example, just an idea for Pink Floyd, uh, which was for a Nebworth re-release. Uh, and uh, the, the photograph I shot in 1975, and I, they just bought it just now, and it, it, it's a very surreal picture. So pictures stand the test of time, and uh, you know if you've got if you've got a dollar and a, and a Starbucks uh, voucher, yeah, I'll do something for you just for the hell of it, just for fun. I will be in touch with you. That is fantastic. I'm sorry, what did you say? That's a promise. I'm not joking. That's a promise. I I love it. And uh, the book is Through the Prism, The Untold Stories from the Hypnosis Archive. It is available now where books are sold. The author is my guest, Aubrey Powell. And thank you so much for joining me today. I will be calling you. Thank you very much indeed. I look forward to it.